quite a number of years ago, I was spending some time in the San Francisco Bay Area where I used to live. I lived there for <coughs> more than 10 years back in the 80s. And uh, I was out visiting, <coughs> and someone sent me a, a message that uh, a teacher that I was familiar with was going to be in, was in the area, would be giving a talk, leading an evening's talk and meditation in, uh, in Berkeley, across the bay from San Francisco where I was staying. Um, so I, I had the evening free, and this was a teacher who uh, I had great respect for, someone that I had known for a while as a Buddhist monk who uh, was, still is, uh, the abbot of a monastery and someone who's very highly regarded in this in the world of uh, Western Dhamma. And uh, so I went over to this place, and uh, it's a, you know, an evening unfolded in a way that was familiar to me. Uh, usually with monks like this, there's some uh, kind of what's called a puja, sort of some devotional offerings and chanting, period of meditation, and then, uh, and then a Dharma talk, kind of. Like what I'm doing, in a sense. Uh, and the the opening words to this talk were um, they stayed with me. They were they were attention getters. He said his first first words out of his mouth at the beginning of this talk. He said, "I've been a monk for uh, over 25 years now, and I want you to know that I haven't gotten anything out of it." And now he's been in robes for well over 35 years. It wasn't the prelude to him saying he was disrobing, uh, leaving that life. That wasn't. It wasn't what that that line was about. But it's it's kind of a strong statement. It might certainly it got our attention. Maybe that was his his intention. But you know, I was kind of taken aback at first. I thought, well, you know, what's that about? What's he? He's, he's had this life, is completely dedicated to following the Buddha's teachings in this very ancient way of, uh, of this very simple life, very austere by, by most standards, certainly by most of our standards, very simple. He's dependent every day in this tradition. Every day, if you're going to eat, somebody has to be feel moved to actually offer you some food. If they don't store food, keep food, they don't handle money, a whole host of other things they don't do. <laughs> Very simple life. He doesn't own, someone who's adopted that life, he owns an alms bowl and a set of robes. That's it. Maybe a, a spoon, a, a few other things that people may have given him, but that's what you start out with as a robe and bowl. Uh, robes and bowl. And, uh, you know, he, he, this was an inspiring teacher, right? Someone who teaches, trains monks and nuns. And, uh, just his presence is an inspiration to a lot of people. So, what, what was he? Clearly, he had some purpose in, in making this statement. He wasn't. He didn't uh, undertake that life. hadn't adopted that lifestyle just because it was a good time, right? It's kind of by many of our standards, maybe not such a good time. Certainly, letting go of a lot to live that way. And you know we live in a in a society in a way we live in a culture that's very oriented around a 
acquiring things, getting stuff, things. And in a lot of ways, sometimes almost unconsciously probably, we base a lot of our sense of who we are around getting and then what we have. We define ourselves, we define set successes. So much in, in many ways in our society, success is, is defined by what we have different ways that we hold this. And so this this uh, conditioning is strong and some of this often comes with us on retreat. You know, we, we take a lot of time, some expense, the energy to get here. We give up a lot to be able to come and spend time like this. And we want something to show for it. We want something to, want to get something out of it, something to show for our what we put ourselves through doing this, you could say. And maybe as we get closer to the end of a retreat, maybe the feelings are grow even a little stronger because you know it's about over. We didn't get it yet. You know, we're about to leave and we're not enlightened or, you know, we look in our own mind and heart and it doesn't look any better than it did when we came. You know, maybe it looks worse, I don't know. We put in years, and it just seems like the same mess in there. Sit down, and it's just the same train wreck it was when I started. feels that way sometimes. That's often our, can be our assessment. So clearly, this, this monk, this teacher I was referring to, he was not saying that that life, that choice of living that way, had not been without value. And he said, I haven't gotten anything out of it. He wasn't saying it was... There was no value there. And he was, you know, happy and contented air that this man presented. Confident, calm, ease, good things that you would feel from this person. So clearly he wasn't saying that there was no value there. So what, what he was pointing to was that what he had gotten out of that choice of life was not anything he had gotten his value there, but rather from what he had let go of. And he went on to speak about this that, that night. It was what it was about letting go the value of that choice of living that way, the, the fruit of the practice, you could say. This is a quotation from Ajahn Sumedho. The way of spiritual life is a movement away from the distraction of attaining or acquiring. It is a relinquishing, a letting go. It simplifies our lives, freeing us from that which is unnecessary. There's no judgment or rejection. It is pure mindfulness developing in the present moment, the only place truth can be found. So this this may what I've been talking about so far is maybe quite obvious, you know. But then it's worth looking at our attitudes and how we spend our time, what we actually do. Because we can wind up spending a lot of time and energy, and I spoke about this sometime in the last day or two, pursuing certain kinds of experiences in meditation, trying to reclaim ones that we've had, trying to find some that we fabricate based on something we've thought about or imagined or maybe read or heard, some kind of experience that we think... You know, this this imagined special state that we, so that we can somehow get there, get to it, 
and then keep or hold it. So this were the point. And yet ultimately, any benefit we might get from this practice results from what we let go of and abandon, relinquish. And the end of suffering, and this goes to the Buddha's core teaching, the cessation of suffering is realized through the abandonment of the very cause of it. We realize the end of suffering by abandoning the cause of suffering, not by getting something, not by getting anything at all. Somewhere I heard this quotation. I think it's probably from Jack Cornfield that has the flavor of something he would have said, but I, I'm not sure. But somebody once, in speaking about meditation retreats, coming on, on a meditation retreat, said, this isn't the shopping mall, it's the dump. You know, sometimes you come to retreat as though we're going shopping for experiences or something. But this is the dump. It's about what we jettison here, not about something we get. So there's a word in Pali, nekama. It's one of the ten paramis. I think I started out this retreat talking about the paramis, and we have spoken about them, these ten they're called the ten um, perfections sometimes. They're ten beautiful qualities of mind that it's said the Buddha perfected over countless lifetimes. So the first of them is dana, generosity, sila, our ethical conduct. Uh, I don't, I'm, they're not all right in my head now. Nekama, renunciation is one. Metta is one. Kanti, patience is one. Aditana, resolve is one. Virya, energy. These list of these ten qualities. And it's the understanding is that when these are brought to perfection, that is the one way we can describe Buddhahood, the perfection of these qualities. They're brought to perfection. But, you know, we don't use the word renunciation that much. It doesn't have a very positive connotation in popular culture very much. We're not a we're not a renunciate culture by temperament here in the States at least. I'll speak to that, maybe in other places. But mostly it's not our inclination, right? And sometimes we hear this word and we hold it, uh, relate to it as as though it were some kind of you know, self inflicted punishment we would choose to engage in. Like some kind of repression <laughs> or or uh, it will bring often connotations, images of lack or bleakness or uh, denial. But if we really think about our practice, we think about what we're doing in our meditation as we meet through the flow of meeting our moment-to-moment experience, we're exploring this landscape of renunciation, of letting go. We're learning to let go, moment by moment. We have to let it go. Because we see that suffering arises when we don't. Very simple. And so in our practice, within our own minds and hearts, in our relationships to the minds and hearts of others, in our lives, in our meditation, as we explore our inner world, in our lives as we uh, engage, in the world, we see how suffering arises. And if we strip away the stories and explanations about it, the excuses and the stories and the reasons that we come up with, all of our beliefs there, we see that it is clinging, grasping, 
to anything at all that leads to suffering. This is the, the Buddha's, uh, the heart of the teachings. It's clinging, grasping, being the cause of suffering. So renunciation then, this letting go, quality of letting go, is, is actually the movement of wisdom and compassion in the face of that. The movement of understanding of really kindness and care. It's the kindest thing we can do for ourselves, for the world beyond our personal lives and our our inner world and our relationships in the world, if we look at the, the greater world and all the suffering we see in the world, which is huge at times if we let it all in, it's giant. This, the, this turmoil and stress and divisions and wars ongoing. It's, if it's not happening here, it's going to flare up over there. It's vast and huge. And we see the clinging that is involved there, clinging to an idea. Just for example, the idea of national boundaries. Right? If you go up in a spaceship, you don't see these, these lines around these countries. Those don't exist, except as ideas that we might hold on to. But there sure is a lot of trouble, struggle, strife, killing <laughs> because of those, because of disagreements about these ideas, right? And on and on, holding to some identification with a belief system. And it's the right one, and yours is wrong, so I think I'll kill you because of it. You know, I mean, that's, that's what's happening all over the place. Or put you in jail or do something. Take your land and property and everything you own away and force you into exile. Because what I believe is true and what you believe is not true. Holding to these ideas. It's just amazing. No no questioning of that. We see how vast this is. If we, tra- if we touch the immensity of that, let that touch us, then we find that a meaningful response is compassion, and renunciation and letting go. Letting go of grasping to these things. This is the, the, if we see this with clarity and understanding, this is the movement of the heart. It brings forth these responses. If we see suffering in this way, and from a place of delusion and lack of clarity, then there's the, the different response that is so common, the knee-jerk reactions of aversion, resistance, denial, attempts to fight against, struggle against, or run away from, or to deny this stress and, and suffering, all of the reactivity about it. So if we're, if, if in order to take a look at the, this exploration of renunciation, an aspect of that, of exploring that, involves an exploration of the energy of desire, clinging, of holding, of desire as the this wanting, as the energy underneath that. Desire for things, for sense pleasures, for experiences, and the desire to get rid of things. Desire for, the desire to, to not have. It's still this energy of desire. We, we look at this a bit. So this is a short quotation from the uh, famous Pali translator Bhikkhu Bodhi in 
something he wrote once. He said, the Buddha describes his teaching as running contrary to the way of the world. The way of the world is the way of following desire. And the unenlightened who follow this way flow with the current of desire, seeking happiness by pursuing the objects in which they imagine they will find fulfillment. The Buddha's message of renunciation states exactly the opposite. The pull of desires is to be resisted and eventually abandoned. Desires to be abandoned not because it is morally evil, but because it is a root cause of suffering. Thus, renunciation is turning away from craving, and its drive for gratification becomes the key to happiness and freedom. So in this way, we could say this quality of turning away from, of letting go, of renunciation, is really at the heart of the path to awakening to freedom. But we don't really hold it in that way. We don't see it as attractive or desirable. We might, perhaps we admire it as some kind of ideal, or feel somehow or acknowledge there's some importance in this quality. Maybe we say, well, we see it as something that might be good for us, you know, like bad tasting medicine, or, you know, that's for monks and nuns, something that they should do. And we mistakenly think that if we adopt, if we undertake an exploration, a real um, taking on of this quality, a development of this, then it means there's no longer going to be any joy in our We make the mistake of thinking that it's pointing to some kind of joyless state of denial or repression or some lifelessness where there'll be no happiness, no pleasurable experiences, but we won't have craving or clinging as our reward somehow. But it'll be kind of this gray, blah sort of existence as though it, it means we'll have to, we have to turn away from anything that might be pleasant or enjoyable in life. This is not only a misunderstanding of renunciation, but it actually can condition a, a brittleness and a, a kind of hardening in the heart and mind that's counterproductive and can, can uh, really be harmful. We'll be careful if, if we notice anything like this in our arising. The point of renunciation is not to deny happiness or joy or the worldly pleasures that we might in our lives. And in the text, the Buddha describes in different ways, in different places, the kinds of uh, worldly pleasures that one can enjoy. This is a short place in a sutta, in a teaching in one, in the Yanguttara Nikaya, in one collection. He said, there are four kinds of happiness which can be attained and enjoyed by a lay person who enjoys sensual pleasures. Which four? The happiness of possession, the happiness of enjoyment, the happiness of debtlessness, and the happiness of blamelessness. This is one place, one way he talks about it. The happiness of possession, of having useful, good, beautiful stuff. The happiness of enjoying pleasant experiences, enjoying the fruits of one's labors, all the different kinds of enjoyment that one may have, the happiness of debtlessness, not 
being in debt, that's a happiness, and a blamelessness, which arises out of uh, good behavior, you could say, out of uh, an attention to our conduct, then we're not being blamed by, by others. That's a kind of happiness, too. So the Buddha is not judging the happiness born of worldly pleasures, but he does, in a sense, point to their limitation. It's a limit. It's a, it's, there's, they, don't, they don't go all the way in terms of bringing us ultimate happiness or satisfaction. So it leads us to encounter, to engage with a, a, a kind of deeply held misunderstanding at times. It's, it's the energy of grasping and craving that is the, the root cause of suffering in this understanding. It's not something inherent in the objects of our desires or in the objects of any kind of worldly pleasure or happiness. It's not in those things. It's in our relationship to them, the grasping or craving. And so we could say that what the Buddha does is he offers us a chance to make a trade, to exchange a lesser happiness for a greater one, you could say. There's a famous quotation in the Dhammapada. If by giving up a lesser happiness, one could experience a greater happiness, a wise person would renounce the lesser to behold the greater. Very simple. The teacher, Tan Jeff, Tanisaro Bhikkhu, he equates it to, he said, it's like trading candy for gold. He said this, an intelligent sacrifice is any in which you'd gain a greater happiness by letting go of a lesser one. In the same way you'd give up a bag of candy if offered a pound of gold in exchange. In other words, it's like a profitable trade. This analogy is an ancient one in the Buddhist tradition. One of the Buddha's disciples once said, and this is out of a poem in the Theragatta, he once said, I'll make a trade, aging for the ageless, burning for the unbound, for the highest peace, the unexcelled safety from bondage. But most of the time, we want to keep the candy and get the gold. Right? That's, that's our usual approach with this. We're afraid that, you know, if we give up the candy, we're afraid we're going to give up every kind of pleasure, and we're going to wind up empty-handed somehow. You know, what, what is this gold? We, we know candy tastes good, at least, even if we're willing to admit that it's a somewhat transient pleasure. But, you know, this gold, well, what is that? We don't trust it somehow. So there are two ways of understanding that, that might be useful here. One of them is seeing the drawbacks of following desire as a pathway to happiness. And the other is seeing the benefit of renunciation of letting go, of relinquishing. Another quote. This is again from Bhikkhu Bodhi. He said, contemplating the dukkha, the stress, the struggle, the suffering inherent in following desire is one way to incline the mind to renunciation. Another way is to contemplate directly the benefits flowing from renunciation. To move from desire to renunciation is not, as might be imagined, to move from happiness to grief, or from abundance to destitution. It is to pass from gross entangling pleasures to an exalted happiness and peace, from a condition of servitude to one of self-mastery. Desire ultimately breeds fear and sorrow, 
but renunciation gives fearlessness and joy. Now that's a strong statement. The idea that renunciation would lead to fearlessness and joy. Who wouldn't make that kind of a trade? (coughs) So renunciation is is held as important in this tradition because it's seen as the very practice of freedom. So rather than being presented as something dismal or bleak, you know, like some kind of hair shirt we'll put on to purge ourselves of our attachments, it's described as a practice of joy, of happiness. And its ultimate fruit is here uh, this uh, greatest kind of happiness, of peace. Ajahn Chah summed this all up very, very simply. These famous lines, some of you may have heard. He said, do everything with a mind that lets, lets go. If you let go a little, you will have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you will have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you'll have complete peace. And we've seen and tasted this in our own lives, in our practice. The the kind of relief or peace that comes when the forces of craving desire, this movement in the heart, falls away. Moments when we're caught and then, ah, we let go. It's such a a relief there. It's because we see this following desire as as a means to happiness that we become enslaved. We remain in bondage to it. But if we look closely at how the energy of desire operates in our lives, we'll see that there's, there is a quality of dukkha, of, of dis-ease, of suffering associated with it, because it tells us that energy is saying to us there's something lacking in your life, whatever it is, something that we need to be happy, to feel complete, feeling it's not good enough now, but if we get this thing, whatever it is, then that will take care of it. Or we're not good enough now, but if we fix ourselves in some way, you know, in the whole world of, of advertising based around this, you know, we need that thing, whatever it is. It reminds me of this cartoon from The New Yorker someone once gave me. It showed someone in one of these big stores where they sell all kinds of electronics and things and and they're, they're going up to the customer service desk and they have the newest one of these electronic gadgets. And they're saying, just one more question. Will it make me happy? You know, it does everything else, right? It's to, you know, and we... You know, maybe some of you have done this, so I'm not making fun of every, anyone. But, you know, there are these... The, the new thing is coming on sale... And the people lie, spend the night on the sidewalk outside the store to get the, the first one to get whatever it is. You know, and then they exit the store to applause as though they've achieved some great deed, some great thing by buying this whatever it is. I mean, I'm not making this stuff up. You can see it in the papers. The problem is that whatever, any particular desire that shows up, once we've satisfied it, 
it isn't very long before the next one shows up, is it? It doesn't. It's not satisfiable in that way. The demands of this wanting mind are endless, and each desire demands that the object of it be the thing that finally does it. Right? When it's really strong, this will be the thing. But it's never the case. How long does it last? It's like kids at Christmas, right? Is that it? Tearing open the presents. No more? It's not satisfiable. <laughs> and then we're off looking for the next thing. It's this restless, relentless pursuit. It's exhausting. It's And every time we follow this feeling of need, it's so pervasive at times. I see it in my own mind and heart at times. Every time we follow this need, we're reinforcing a, a sense of insufficiency, of not enoughness in our hearts and minds. As if the sufficiency, as if somehow the freedom, the happiness of our heart and mind is determined by conditions, by having something be a particular way, or getting a thing. But that's not what the Buddha was pointing to. The peace and freedom of these teachings doesn't point to to a happiness that's conditioned in that way. This freedom is, is not determined in any way by conditions or circumstances or things we might get. Because conditions are always changing. And as soon as they change, we're back where we started from. If our happiness freedom depends on things being a particular way, having gotten a particular thing, achieved or attained something, then what happens when it changes? We're back where we started from. There's no real freedom there. But we see how difficult it is to let go of in our experience. It's not easy, you know. We, we spend a lot of time and energy getting to be able to come to a retreat. We're hoping to sit down. We're hoping to find some peace or stillness. And we sit down, and what do we see? You know, it's this, this restless movement between desire and aversion so much of the time, wanting, not wanting, desire to get, desire to get rid of. These energies are strong and this conditioning, these patterns are really deeply ingrained. And we're undoing this deeply held, very powerful conditioning in our practice. And it's not, it doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen because we maybe come to some intellectual understanding that this makes sense. It takes real perseverance and dedication and, and patience. But there are those times when we let it go, when this energy falls away, when it arises but we, we just let it arise and pass. In that moment, we are retraining the heart and mind. We're putting out the fire of suffering when we let go of this energy, or we don't grasp onto it, let it pull, let it pull us. And in that moment, even if it's short-lived, there's a quality of release, a sense of freedom. And it's good to acknowledge and taste this. It can come in any moment. And there's this, this putting down, this letting go, relinquishing.
we can see that sometimes even in the midst of when this energy arises very strongly, there are times when we can find a place of stillness where we can just let this energy arise, sit with it, feel it, not trying to get away from it, and letting it just fall and pass away. So I've been speaking a lot in terms of the energy of the wanting mind. I've mentioned the the wanting mind turned towards the wanting to get rid of, this quality of aversion of not wanting. And and this is really something we see a lot in our hearts and minds, right? A mind that says no, it's aversion to experience, to things in our lives, judgments and criticisms and intolerance and impatience, you know, just going through a day here, all the things that we can find to judge about ourselves, about everyone else who's here, about the place, whatever it is, this energy is really strong. But we also can sit with this energy, learn to let this energy arise, the mind that says no, the energy of aversion, of, of avoidance, resistance. And rather than believing all of our stories about it, getting identified with, attached to it, reinforcing the the fear and anger that often follows on from these mind states, we learn to just be with it, be still, let it arise and get to know it, feel it, and then allow it to arise and pass away, to let it go, to care for it, actually hold it with a quality of of kindness, like we might hold an angry child or a frightened child, and then we let it go and it falls away. So there's a way in, in which this the movement of renunciation is also the movement of kindness and care. You find ways to let go of struggle, of fear, of judgment, of blame, and all the manifestations of aversion, especially, I think, towards ourselves. So much of that that we encounter we shift from this posture of resistance and denial to one of acceptance and kindness. And any time, however briefly, or to whatever extent we're able to do this at all, we're tasting a quality of courage and steadiness of mind and heart that allows us to step out of the fire of this constant movement between desire and aversion and touching the freedom that the Buddha was pointing at that runs throughout the teachings that is born of letting go, of of relinquishment, of abandoning, of renunciation. So in essence, we're training ourselves to listen to these, to resistance, to denial, to desire, as messengers that are telling us simply let go. Maybe the most subtle, challenging, ultimately the most liberating aspect of uh, renunciation is the, has to do with the renunciation of what we call self-view. <coughs> one time someone asked the Buddha to summarize his teaching in one short phrase. You know, he's got, we've got volumes of suttas. Someone said, just give me, give me the gist of it in one phrase more than one place where this is done. <laughs> this famous 
plate, time when he said, nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I, as me, as mine. Boss, enough. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I, as me, as mine, as belonging to me. So this, this letting go in this way leads to a really deep, unshakable kind of freedom is the renunciation that comes from seeing through the fallacy of self-view. This doesn't mean the negation of self. It doesn't mean that we, that we deny who we are but we see the emptiness of the view of self in this way of I, me, mine. We still care for ourselves, right? We don't somehow try to annihilate, deny who we are, but we see it that for what it is. We are fooled into delusion about it, about what it means. We see the phenomenon of self-view in this way of of identification with clinging, with grasping at whatever, in the nothing whatsoever, as I, as me, as my, we see that this clinging, this identification with, that happens here, that self-view arises dependent on what might be clung to or identified with in any moment, whatever this clinging, grasping at identification with something in experience gives substance to this feeling I am. We see this over and over. There's a shifting shape of self-view depending on what we might hold in this way, what we might cling to in any moment. And it's a shifting shape. And then there are times when nothing is grasped at at all and it doesn't arise. It's not always there. Maybe on retreat we have a chance to see this more more clearly than at other times. But there are times when there is just the flow of experience and there's no grasping at any of it, no identification with any of it as being mine or me or belonging to me. It's just this flow of phenomena arising and passing in our experience. But this view, this tendency to identify in this way as I, as me, as mine, it's very deep, old, powerful conditioning, and its manifestations can be traced back as far as we can remember, really. All of the stories that we tell ourselves or that we've been told and then we've adopted them as 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 our own, you know, I'm no good, I'm not lovable, I'm incredible, I'm fearful, I'm a sad, fearful person, I'm an amazing, liberated person, whatever it might be. There's a whole range of how we, we hold these things in any moment. It's self, it's, it's arises dependent on a thought or emotion, idea, that arises and and not seen, it's clung to as defining who we are. And it changes all the time, right? I mean, just in one meditation period, we can go from being the world's worst yogi to the world's best 
most incredible yogi, whatever either one of those might mean. Depending on what's happening and our relationship to it, how we define ourselves in terms of it. I'm no good. I'm incredible. All of this thing. You know, how many selves in this way do we see over the course of a single day? You know, is, is, which one of them is true? There's so much suffering that arises because of this, this quality of clinging to some aspect of our experiences as being who we are. It's holding on to it as somehow defining us or belonging to us as being me, as who I am. So letting go of clinging on this level is, is really key. It's not something that we, using the word, the, ter- the expression letting go maybe is, is a little bit um, tricky because it, it seems to imply that we have to somehow do it, have to cut it off or you know, put it down or let it go. This letting go is a letting go that happens. Maybe letting be is a better this process happens by itself just through our willingness to engage with and see what's going on, to really touch the suffering that arises there, then, then it's, the letting go happens by itself because the heart is inclined towards not suffering. <laughs> when it sees, it's like we're holding a burning coal and we don't realize we're holding on to it. We realize it, we let it go. We don't have to decide, oh, Yes, learning. Put, maybe I should put that down. That's automatic. It's just it's a natural response of the heart, of the mind. And so we, we learn through our practice, just through engaging with the whole deal, that, that it's not about freedom doesn't arise out of something that we get, some special experience or state, something that we're getting, but ultimately and always from what we are able to relinquish or let go of, or what falls away. It's a lightening. So I'll end tonight with, this is a, a summary, just a portion of a teaching that the Buddha gave to uh, a wandering ascetic named Bahia. It's quite famous, some of you are probably familiar with the, the uh, Bahia Sutta. This guy Bahia, was, uh, he was a, a renunciate ascetic spiritual practitioner of a kind who was living in, a, in an area to the south of, I guess, where the Buddha lived, somewhere, some distance away. There were all kinds of interesting practices, still are, in uh, all over the world, in India at that time. There were all kinds of things. And this guy, Bahia, he was known as Bahia of the bark cloth. And apparently he had fashioned some kind of robe out of tree bark, dressed himself kind of like a tree. And um, he was practicing in the forest doing something, and, um, you know, people were coming and making offerings, and he, was, he, he, he became convinced that he was enlightened, that he was a, a fully enlightened 
being. And it's said that a kindly deva, heavenly being, who had been a relative of his in a past life, came down at some point and said, Hey, Bahia, not only are you not enlightened, nothing that you're doing is even going in that direction. You're kind of off track here. And Bahia was sincere. He was a little bit deluded, but he was sincere. <laughs> he said, well, what What should I do? What can I do? How, who will teach me? And this, this kindly deity said, there's this guy, Gautama Buddha, he's up north of here. He's, he's a good teacher. Go find him. He'll tell you. So Bahia, he says, okay, yeah, I'll go. And he wanders, uh, makes quite a journey up to find the Buddha. And he comes to where the Buddha is living, and he arrives while the monks are out on alms round. They're wandering through the village uh, to collect offerings of food. And Bahia, you know, he find, figures out which one is the Buddha, and he goes up to him and he says, Venerable Sir, please, please give me some teaching." And the Buddha said, uh, not now, Bahia, now is not the time. I'm on alms round. And Bahia says, you know, we just don't know what's coming up. Please, tell me now, something now. You know, who knows what's going to happen in the next while. No, Bahia, this is not the time. Third time. Now, traditionally in all these stories, if you ask the Buddha three times, he generally says, okay. He relents after three requests. So he says, okay. So this is a summary of his teaching to Bahia. It's a very short teaching. He said, okay, Bahia. Then you should train yourself thus. In reference to the seen, there will be only the seen. In reference to the heard, only the heard. In reference to the sensed, the other senses, only the sensed. In reference to the cognized, that which is known in the mind, cognized, in reference to the cognized, only the cognized. This is how you should train yourself. When for you, Bahia, there's only the seen in reference to the seen, only the heard in reference to the heard, only the sensed in reference to the sensed, only the cognized in reference to the cognized. Then, Bahia, there is no you in terms of that. When there is no you in terms of that, there is no you there. When there is no you there, you are neither here, nor there, nor anywhere in between. Just this is the end of suffering. And as the story goes, Bahia, his mind opened up, and he became fully enlightened on hearing this simple teaching. I should have warned you beforehand in case it might have happened. Maybe it did for some of you. And as the story goes, he bowed to the Buddha and walked away. And very shortly after, he was run down, gored by a mad cow or bull and killed. So he was right in saying to the Buddha, we don't know what's coming. You know, He had a sense somehow. That, you know, this is the time. I need these teachings now. Well, that's how that story ends. So can we train our we train ourselves to practice in this way, in the scene? Let there be only the scene, in the herd only the herd. In whatever we sense. Just that. 
whatever arises in the mind and the heart, just that. That simplicity. Where we don't grasp at any of it. We let it arise and pass just as it is, without adding to it. Without putting ourselves in the middle of it. I'll leave you with this short poem, which I believe was uttered by the Buddha or somebody after hearing uh, Bahia's story. And um, it's just a it's just a nice bit of poetry. Where water, earth, fire, and wind no footing find, there burns not any light, nor shines the sun and the moon sheds not her radiant beams, and the home of darkness is not there. When in deep silent hours the holy sage to truth attains, then she is free from joy and pain, from form and formless worlds released. So we'll just uh, sit, continue sitting for another moment or so, quietly together, and we'll just let these words drift away. I'll ring the bell in just a moment. In the scene, only the scene. In the heard, only the heard. In the sensed, only the sensed. In the cognized, only the cognized. And by here, there is no you in terms of that. When there is no you in terms of that, there is no you there. When there is no you there, you are neither here nor there, nor in between. This, just this, is the end of suffering. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.